Micah chapter 5, Christ the King and his people, the remnant people. 5 verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men, and they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a lion, a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you, so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherim from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. Amen. In our chapter, the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 4, or 1 to 5, first part of verse 5, we have primarily a description of Christ. And then, in the rest of it, his people and what his people do ultimately. Verse 1, you may see in your Bible a note where verse 1 is actually connected in the Hebrew text to chapter 4, 9 to 13. It's the 14th verse of the previous chapter. And then chapter 5, verse 2 starts a new chapter. That's important. It's instructive. It seems that it is better to take it that way, to take verse 1 of chapter 5 with the preceding paragraph to be able to understand it better. How shall we understand it? In chapter 4, verse 9, 4, verse 9, he's used this... um, Expression, why now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Then writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. It's not as though the people who are Exile, who are destroyed, have no king or no counselor. They do have one. They have to first go into exile, but they do have the Lord who is going to help them. The Lord will help them to such an extent in verses 11 to 13 that he will deliver them from their enemies. He will ultimately deliver them from their enemies and they will participate in punishing their own enemies. If we continue that thought in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. 
with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Further describing the fact that they should assemble, they should be united, they should be prepared for what is about to happen. That is, their own nation will be in uh, siege, they will be exiled, they will be no more. Their own nation. They're even going to have the enemy smite the judge or the chief ruler of the people of Israel on the cheek, which is a sign, a description of that king's humiliation. In the case of King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, he was humiliated. He was captured. Um, His sons were slain before his very eyes. And then he was blinded, and then eventually he was killed. Zedekiah was. So Zedekiah was mistreated. If it is a reference to their kingship being destroyed and humiliated, that's what he's describing. But the people, they should amass themselves together or assemble themselves because they're not alone And as one people, they do have a king. They are to assemble as troops assemble. And who is their king? Their king is described in verses 2 to 5. Though their physical circumstances are miserable, yet, spiritually speaking, they have an eternal and powerful king who they should trust. They should trust him and look forward to his coming. Verse 2, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The people, though they are to gather as troops gather, their number is very small compared to all of their enemies. And their number is very small compared to the number of people who lived in their nation. So their remnant is small compared to the rest. Well, that smallness, that littleness, that fewness should not be despised because in verse 2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, that is the Bethlehem that's in the land of Judah, as he makes it clear, the clans of Judah. Perhaps he's using two names to make sure we know which Bethlehem he's talking about because there was another Bethlehem in the tribe of Zebulun in the north. Joshua 19.15 mentions that. There was a Bethlehem in the tribe of Zebulun. This Bethlehem is in the tribe of Judah and the other name, alternate name for Bethlehem in the Old Testament was Ephrathah. This was the name of one of the patriarchs who settled there, and then the village or town was named after him. Well, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is not a big city. They aren't significant. They aren't populous. They are obscure. That's why he's saying, too little to be among the clans of Judah. The clans or the thousands of Judah the way of counting for the population and organization of the people, a head of a household was considered one, no matter how many people were in his household, and they would count uh, hundreds, tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to organize the people to judge their cases and to know what their population was, the census of the nation. Well, Judah did not have thousands of heads of households. They had plenty of people, enough people, but not in the thousands. That's why they weren't counted among the thousands of the rest of the cities, the rest of the towns and villages in Judah. It was a small, obscure, not very well, um, not very high in reputation. Yes, it was the place near which Rachel died, and Rachel's tomb was, Genesis 35. Yes, it had some history like that. Yes, Boaz and Ruth were from there. But who else was from there? Who else was born in Bethlehem? David. 
David was. David came from this small, obscure, no-name town and became the king of the nation. And not only did he become the king of the nation, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that his dynasty would last forever in Christ. His, David's dynasty would last forever in Christ. And that's why Micah reminds the people. Because here, even though they are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. God the Father speaks and he says, from you, Bethlehem, there's going to be a ruler for me. He's going to go forth from Bethlehem. He's going to arise, originate in Bethlehem. That obscure place where David was, which was still obscure in the time of Micah, and even obscure in the time of Christ's birth, in the time of the apostles. It was always obscure. But who's going to be born there? Who's going to originate from there? His goings forth are from long ago. How long ago? From the days of eternity. From eternity. To confirm eternity here, let's see from Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Days of eternity. Another way of rendering this is of old, days of old, or just simply of old. Proverbs 8, in verse 22, 22, let's read 22 to 27. Here, wisdom existed before the world existed. Notice verse 22, the Lord possessed me, who is me? Wisdom. And wisdom ultimately is in the person of Christ. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary, so that the water should not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Wisdom existed with God before the world existed. That means that this phrase, of old or from the days of eternity, as Micah says it, or from long ago, these phrases in this context has to do with Christ existing in eternity. Not first existing when he was born, but he had already existed from all eternity. This means he possesses deity. Christ is said by Micah to be divine and be born into the world. This is one of the Old Testament verses that declare the divine nature and human nature of Christ. Both natures in one verse. Before we proceed to show some more on the deity of Christ, let's confirm that this verse is in fact about Christ. Matthew 2. Matthew 2. Matthew 2 verse 1. We'll read 1 to 6. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's the chief priests and the scribes of the people, which means it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Herod calls them, he confirms with them, and the Magi, because the Magi have arrived to see where he is so that they might worship him. And all of these men, the Magi, the Sadducees and Pharisees, and Herod the king, no one denies when Matthew says that this is what they discussed, that they knew Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. He who is the ruler and the shepherd of Israel. From a lowly place, but he's not a lowly person. All right, now, does the Old Testament teach the deity of Christ? Does the Old Testament predict the deity of Christ or that when Christ is born into the world, he would have this divine nature? Of course, human nature, but let's prove the divine nature of Christ. Does the Old Testament predict it? Let's look at Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. In the first part of the chapter, he tells the northern tribes that a great light is going to appear to them. He tells them a great light is going to appear to them. This passage is actually quoted by Matthew in Matthew 4, 15 and 16, the first part of the chapter. But then he comes to verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. No end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David from then on and forever. And God himself will accomplish this. His deities proclaimed right there. Uh, another place where his deity is proclaimed is Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. 23, 5 and 6. 23, 5 and 6. This chapter primarily exposes the false prophets. However, remember, whenever there is a discourse on false prophets, there will usually be something said of true prophets. And in this case, the best of the true prophets, Christ. 23, 5, and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, our righteousness. That's his name. Who's the righteous branch of David but Christ? The New American Standard Bible capitalizes the B of branch, the H of he and his in this passage. They also know Jeremiah is predicting 
the coming of Christ, who's the Lord. Daniel 7, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is quoted in Matthew 26, 64 and Mark 14, 62. For those of you taking notes, Matthew 26, 64, Mark 14, 62. Daniel 7, 13. Daniel sees a vision. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The kingdom he receives is eternal, from verse 14. Who is the Son of Man then? Again, the NASB capitalizes the he of he came up to the Ancient of Days and even capitalizes the S and M of Son of Man. They know, they believe this is Christ. Daniel 7. Let's see one more. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. These verses are not the only ones in the Old Testament. This is just a sampling. Psalm 110. This is also one of the most cited verses, if not the most cited verses in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who wrote this psalm? David. But who's speaking? The Lord says to my Lord. Who is the my of my Lord? The my is David. And if the my is David, then who is the Lord who is speaking to David's Lord? And notice the spelling of the words, Lord. One is Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh says to Adonai, my Adonai. Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If God the Father is speaking, does your Bible capitalize the your enemies and your feet? The why? Yes, because they believe the Father is speaking to the Son, and the Son possesses deity. That's why they capitalize the pronouns. And... Check your footnotes. There are many references in the New Testament for this verse, and it's abundantly clear, especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, when they cite these. Christ cites this verse, and he confounds his enemies. He silences his enemies because they don't want to admit the truth, that the son of David in physical generation is the uncreated divine God who came into the world and was born in Bethlehem, David's birthplace. They don't want to admit that because if they admit that, they have to believe it and repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so Micah adds another verse to the deity of Christ as well as the humanity. All right, then... Verses 3 and following in Micah chapter 5. Therefore, he, capital H, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. It's Christ giving them up for a time. Christ gives up. He gives up his people to hardship and labor. But just like a mother who is in labor after she bears a child, she forgets the pain and she's rejoicing in the birth of the child. The labor pains that the church experiences 
will be nothing compared to the future and what Christ will do when he delivers us. John 16. John 16, 20. John 16, 20 to 22. John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. There might be temporary sorrow, but the joy that Christ gives to us won't be taken away. It'll last forever. And what's included in this joy? Micah 5, 3. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Return or turn. That is, they will be united. The remainder of his brethren, the brethren of Christ. The remnant of Christ's brothers will be united to the sons of Israel. This remnant was mentioned a few times or a couple of times already and will more in the book of Micah, will be mentioned more. Micah 2.12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Chapter 4, Micah chapter 4, 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Chapter 5. Not only our verse in verse 3, but look at verses 7 to 9. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down and tears. There, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. And furthermore, chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 8. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. God's focus is on the remnant being united to Christ and having their faith in him. Those among the Gentiles will be joined with those among the Jews. They will have be one flock with one shepherd. I'm alluding to John 10, 16. Let's pick up on this thought of the flock in verse 4. Then we'll also remind ourselves of John 10. Micah 5, verse 4 and he will arise and shepherd his flock. Christ will arise and shepherd his flock. How? In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. Christ is the great shepherd, the good shepherd. He is our peace. He brings peace between us and God and among ourselves. He brings peace and he gives us internal peace. All of this he grants to us as his flock. He is our shepherd. 
He uses the strength of the Lord. He uses the name of the Lord. And he makes us secure. And they will remain, means, and they will dwell, they will live without being bothered, without being tormented by persecution. That's how they will remain securely. And he will be great to the ends of the earth. He's going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords of all the earth. If he rules the whole earth, he has dominion over all nations. No one can ward off his hand and say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. No one can say that to Christ. Micah 5.5. 5, 5 and 6. Here we have encouragement in the midst of affliction. Micah, he has lived and he has seen the Assyrian conquest of the north. Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries, and both of them witness the downfall of the northern kingdom, Samaria, in 722 BC. So Assyria controls the north. He's already said in chapter 4, verse 10, Babylon will destroy the south. But what should the people of God do when they have, uh, when they have understood this reality? Verse 5. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Micah gives assurance that Assyria will not be victorious. However, they were victorious in the north. They were not victorious in the south. Hezekiah was able to fend them off by God's help, miraculous help. And yet they say here, or Micah says here, that the people of God will have the victory over Assyria. This never happened in history. If it never happened in history that the people of God recovered their land, destroyed the Assyrians, what's he talking about? What kind of victory do the people of God have with their innumerable shepherds and leaders of men? This is a figure of speech, seven shepherds and eight leaders of men meaning there will be plenty of them, plenty of them to lead us and give us the conquest over our enemies. And Assyria is just mentioned here because they are the most recent major enemy. But they're not the only enemies. They're not the only ones. Ultimately, the people of God, the remnant, are victorious. Their victory is described in verses 7 to 9, the verses that we just read. Their victory is a spiritual victory. Their victory conquers them now in terms of our redemption, in terms of our deposit or pledge that Christ will give us the ultimate victory. That has started now. But ultimately, as we saw in the previous chapter, on the day of judgment, Malachi 4, 1 to 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 to 3, Revelation 3, 9, we are going to trample underfoot our enemies. And in Micah 5, 7 and 9, he describes it like a lion. He describes us like a lion and a young lion in verse 8. We will be like that against our enemies. We will be able to overwhelm and conquer our enemies. The analogy of verse 8 of us being lions is said literally in verse 9. 
Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. He's speaking of the day of judgment when we finally conquer our enemies. Also another note in verse 7, the dew and the showers. He's describing the remnant as the dew of the morning and as the showers on vegetation. Very helpful and very needful, very useful in the hand of God to produce fruit. That's what we are. We are called do also in Psalm 110, verse 3. We're called do. Psalm 110, verse 3. Remember, this is a messianic psalm from the first verse and even the fourth verse. But in verse 3, he says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. We are as the dew to Christ. Very useful and productive or producing fruit. Hosea 14, Hosea 14, 5. 14, 5, there too. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. There we have the ultimate source of our dew, which comes from God. And God then makes us productive. He will blossom like the lily and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon, so forth. Israel is the one that will blossom because God will produce good in us. The same with the figure of speech in Micah 5, 7, showers on vegetation. Let's see one example of this in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 1 to 5. 44, 1 to 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. How is the water described? Or how is the Holy Spirit described? Holy Spirit is described as water. So the water uh, of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, then we are fruitful and produce fruit in others too. We, that's how it works. It originates in God, and in this case, the analogy of water coming from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who endues us with this power to produce fruit. Then we come to the last paragraph, 10 to 15. Micah 5, 10 to 15. And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. In that day, the day, the final day of judgment, in that day, remember that day, those days have to do with events from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ in the day of judgment, in the second coming. What will God do? He's going to cut off horses and chariots from people. He did this in Egypt, Exodus 14, 21 to 31. He does this throughout history, and he warns us constantly not to trust in horses, not to trust in chariots, but to trust in him. Those people who trust 
in these mighty, strong objects are told, you, sh you shouldn't do that. You should trust in me because I'm going to destroy all of these strong objects. Let's see two examples of this. Psalm 147, Psalm 147, 7 to 11. 147, 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of the man. The Lord favors those who fear him those who wait for his loving kindness. God doesn't take delight in strength, the strength of men. He takes delight in those who fear him and those who hope or wait for his loving kindness. Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21, 31. We'll start at 30. Proverbs 21, 30 to 31. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. When he says there is no wisdom, understanding, or counsel against the Lord, he means no victorious wisdom, no victorious understanding, no victorious counsel against the Lord. God will destroy them, the wisdom of men, and he'll be victorious. Micah 5.11, what else will God cut off? I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all of your fortifications. Your cities, your, your understanding, your wisdom, your skill, with which I endowed you, you use against me, I'm now going to cut off. You would not know how to build cities, Unless I gave you that wisdom. We are reminded of this fact, like in Exodus 31, where the craftsmen are said to have been endowed by the Spirit of God with wisdom to construct the tabernacle. Exodus 31. Um, the same here. God will cut off the cities in which they put their hope. Didn't God cut off the city of Cain, which he dubbed Enoch, Genesis 4, 17? How do we know God destroyed Cain's city? The flood. In the flood, he destroyed it. And then Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, God destroyed that. Didn't he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19? God can destroy any fortification, any city. He can do as he pleases. So God's strength is strength and wisdom is better than man's. Then God's spiritual understanding. God's spiritual understanding, spiritual wisdom is better. Verses 12 12 to 14, verses 12 to 14. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. The sorcerers, the fortune tellers will be gone. This is obviously prohibited in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. 
For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. When people persist, God is going to cut them off. He's warning them of their imminent destruction. Well, when people consult sorcerers and fortune tellers and whatever other variations there are, what are they attempting to do? They're attempting to get spiritual wisdom elsewhere. Spiritual wisdom in sources other than from God himself. And where is that found? In the Bible. Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8. 19. Isaiah 8, 19 to 22. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. The plight of those who consult sinister sources is darkness, distress, gloom, anguish. That's what they will have for all eternity. People need to consult the testimony. They need to consult the law and the testimony, the Bible, the Word of God, not other men and not their own inventions. They shouldn't fabricate. I had a dream. I had a vision. God told me, the Holy Spirit said, they should never fabricate anything like that. When they fabricate that, they are fallacious and they are following Satan and they will be punished with darkness forever. Verse 13, Micah 5.13, I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities. They worship carved images or graven images. They make idols of wood and metal. They make them and then they bow down before them. Cry out to them as though they are real gods who will help them and answer their prayers. They bow and offer sacrifices to their sacred pillars. Now, their sacred pillars, I wish that the translation said it or in a better way or had a footnote for this. If you look up this word for pillar, and as NASB says, sacred pillar, as opposed to a secular pillar like a political pillar, uh, a pillar of conquest, you know, commemorating conquest or something, a monument. In this case... What is the sacred pillar? If we check this out, it's in the shape of the male penis, of the penis. And in idolatrous religions, it's known as the phallic symbol, the phallic symbol or the phallus. That is what they worship, thinking that that is the source of fertility, that's the source of life, that's the source of strength, So I ought to worship it so that I might have an abundance in my life. Many children, lots of money, success in everything I do, whatever. That's what people want, so they worship what they want. They worship what they want. 
instead of worshipping the true God whom they should want. But God says it's going to end. It will end. And the Asherim, the Asherim or the Asherah or Ashtarot, this is often, your Bible may say, wooden symbols of a female deity. It was not enough for them to worship male deities. They wanted to worship female deities. They wanted male and female. They couldn't resist. That's why there's always gods and goddesses in paganism. Whenever people think of worshiping God in the feminine, the way they do here, it shows that they have a pagan, idolatrous, false god that they worship. This happens in Christianity too. It happened in Judaism in the days of Jeremiah and many other days that they wanted to worship the goddesses because they thought when they worshiped the goddesses, the goddesses answered their prayers and gave them fruitful seasons, gave them many children. That's what they wanted. But God says, I'm going to destroy your cities. Everything is going to be gone. Everything. Verse 15, And I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. Everyone who refuses to obey the gospel, the obedience of faith, Romans 1, 5, and 16, 25 to 27, whoever refuses the obedience of faith. And why is faith called, why is that phrase used, the obedience of faith? Because faith requires obedience. The moment you hear about the necessity of faith, you need to obey it. And once you obey it and have faith, that true faith continues to obey every day. Whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. So people who don't believe the gospel they don't have the obedience of faith. The only thing that's left for them is the vengeance of God. He says, in anger and wrath. That's all. This is Romans 1.18 to 32. Only the wrath of God is inflicted on the unrepentant wicked. That's what they will get. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.